and welcome to Start Right Here, a podcast where we discuss breaking in, standing out, and the path to success in the beauty industry. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I hope the conversations I have with my guests inspire you to forge a path of your own. Let's get started. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Tia Williams, beauty maven, author, and the only other Black woman besides me who worked in beauty at L under Regis Pagnes. Yeah! Welcome, Tia. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so excited to chat with you, Corinne. I'm so excited to have you here. Can you give us your 30-second bio? Okay, I'm going to try to do this in 30 seconds. Let's see. Okay. I graduated from University of Virginia in 1997, and I moved to New York to work in magazines and beauty. And my first job in beauty editorial was in YM when I was 22. And I moved up the mastheads from YM to Elle, Glamour, Lucky, Teen People, Essence. I started the second beauty blog ever. It's called Shake Your Beauty, and I ran that for years. And then I'm also a novelist. And my first novel, The Accidental Diva, I published in 2004. And my latest one I published in 2016, and it's being made into a movie with Gabrielle Union for Netflix. It's called The Perfect Find. And my next novel comes out next June. That's a lot. And that's exciting and very accomplished. Let's talk about a Black woman having those roles at all those brands is major. So we got to give you a moment to go, yes, go girl. Well, thank you. I mean, it's something... Because I'm usually, with obviously the exception of Essence, the, the only Black woman in the room or Black person in the room sometimes. So, yeah, it's an experience. It is. So was the beauty industry a destination or a detour for you? Destination. I have always been myself, Corinne. Like, I was nine with a Vogue subscription. And I kept them all. In my parents' garage, I have Vogue's, Seventeen's, Bazaar's, L's. My mom would be like, okay, you have to, and you can't keep all of them in these boxes. So you have to figure out which ones you want to keep. So I decided to keep March and September because those are the big fashion months. They're like encyclopedia sized. I have a whole library in my parents' garage. I was just obsessed with makeup, obsessed with Kevin O'Quan and Sandy Linter and Way Bandy and all these amazing, iconic, legendary makeup artists. I was obsessed with fashion shows and what happened behind the scenes and the designers and the makeup artists creating these looks. And I was obsessed with makeup itself. Like I would go to the drugstore and just salivate over Maybelline. And I just, I was so drawn to it. And then at the same time, I was a writer. I was always a writer. I wrote my first little novel when I was seven years old in a steno pad. And I even wrote an about the author section in the back with my second grade picture. It's like two, comma, seven, comma, is probably the youngest author you've ever encountered. Do you still have that? I still have it. Yeah, I still have it. And writing about beauty was the marriage of my two worlds. And I graduated from UVA with an English degree and I moved to New York to take this summer program. I don't know if NYU still has it, but it's a summer publishing course. And they teach you all about book publishing and they teach you all about magazine publishing. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And they had like real people from the industry come and teach the classes so that you were networking all summer. By the end of the summer, we all had jobs. Of course, this is a very 1997 story. This is not a 2020 story. <laughs> right. So 
Let's talk about the first job. So you're at YM. A lot of people probably don't know what YM is because it's not no longer with us. But did you get that job as a result of the NYU program? Did someone from there come? So what happened was I got a job from the NYU program at Doubleday, which is a book publishing house. I knew that wasn't my final stop. I wanted to be in magazines. So I was like, how long am I going to do this? I was only there for like three months. And my boss, who was a senior editor there, one of her authors was Diane Salvatore, who was the editor-in-chief of YM at the time. And everyone knew I was obsessed with beauty and trying to be a beauty writer. And my boss was like, I don't want to lose you, but I have to tell you that Diane said that they're looking for an editorial assistant in the beauty department. I was like, bye. (laughs) (laughs) I gathered my stuff and I was out of there. Yeah. So I got that job. So that's really interesting. Let's talk a little bit about Elle because we have common ground there. Were you the only Black person at Elle when you were there? Mm-hmm. Okay. The whole eight years I was there, there were three or four Black people in editorial at all times. And the difference is that when you were there, it had become more like a Condé Nast publication because Amy was running it. Amy Gross was running it. But when I was there, Regis was like the last word. Mm. And the editors, like, you know how many editor-in-chiefs came in between my my eight years? Nine. Nine? Nine editor-in-chiefs, and I had four beauty directors. (laughs) We went through people, but Regis was the last word. Right. And we knew there was going to be a changing of a guard. When it was jointly owned by Murdoch and Hachette, we knew there was going to be a changing of a guard when they said, meet in the lobby at five. Mm. And then they'd introduce us to the new editor. It was really interesting. But among those editors, we have a couple of great bosses, but one of them was Karen Anderegg. And she was really, really nurturing of my career. But I think we had different experiences because Regis has a Black wife. So that's one thing. But there were people more senior than I that were Black as well. There was the model editor, Nikki Maniscalco, and there was... The food editor, Ruth Gardner. So it was like, it was a whole different kind of environment. And back then, I remember reading it during the era when you were there. I was like in high school and it felt so international. You know, it had that global feeling like it was an American magazine, but it felt like something else. But one of the things I think that you benefited from at Working Out was your relationship with Jean Godfrey June. Yes. The legend. Yes. Yeah, that is the best thing to come out of Elle. Jean taught me how to write. She really, really did. Well, she helped me refine my voice to this day. You know, 20 years later, I think, what would Jean say? She's one of the legendary beauty editors of our time. She kind of was blogging before there was blogging because she had this section in Elle called, what was it? Godfrey's Corner or Godfrey's Guide. And it was just a page of her first person musings on her favorite beauty products of the month. And it was hilarious and it was smart and it was elevated. It wasn't like cheesy beauty writing, you know, with a lot of alliteration. <laughs> it was like a really, really smart, aspirational journal. And it gave beauty writing a heartbeat. And she was obviously a creative writer. It was more than just blush for her. And as a creative writer myself, learning how to write beauty from this woman was just a gift because it was always more than the mascara in front of you. And 
she wanted her writers to paint a world. And I use her advice in my fiction writing. I mean, she's just a genius. That's the skill you learned that set you up for success later from Jean. Beyond a doubt. And it's set everyone who has worked with Jean kind of has that special thing that sets them apart from everyone else because we're such creative writers. Like we take it to a different place. I think that's fantastic. And as we were talking in the pre, before we started hit record, you have to have a point of difference. There are lots of people who write about beauty, but each of us has a unique vantage point and something that we bring to the table. You were one of the first successful Black beauty bloggers. Tell me about Shake Your Beauty and how it came to be. Shake Your Beauty came to be because I was the beauty director of Teen People at the time, which is now defunct, but it was People Magazine's teen magazine sort of sister. And I was working for Amy Barnett. Amy Barnett was editor-in-chief, which was amazing, Black woman. And I had resigned because I had written my first novel, and I was young, and I thought that, oh, I'm an author now. Like, this is what I'll do. I didn't realize that authors didn't really make any money. So I ended up coming back into the magazine world. But for a minute, I took a break. And I was talking to my literary agent, and I was like, oh, I'm excited to be a novelist, but like beauty is the other half of me. Like, I'm really going to miss having this voice. And she was like, well, start a blog. And I was like, I, I'm sorry. Like, what is a blog? I've never heard of a blog. I don't know. It sounds like a made up word. What are you talking about? And, um, she showed me a couple on WordPress (laughs) or Blogspot, And I was like, okay, I can do this. She's like, yeah, it's basically just like your beauty diary, you know, and you can still maintain your beauty voice and still talk to your audience and have this unique sort of black point of view on beauty, which honestly was super rare back then. Like we just didn't have that. No, we didn't at all. Yeah. And so I was like, okay. And my ex-husband who is an IT genius sort of set it up for me and, and I did it. And it was very analog to think about now because there was no social media. I mean, I got out the word by sending out a mass email to people and it just caught on and it got bigger than I ever thought it would have. And it sort of kickstarted a movement. It was one of the pioneers of beauty blogging. So it's pretty cool. Do you miss it? I miss those early days where no one knew what they were doing. And it was just kind of like, okay, let's see if this works, hit send. But now, like I could never compete now because it's such a business and the bloggers are so clever about social and digital marketing and all of that. And I'm clueless. So I couldn't compete now, but... I do miss those early days. So I looked at your LinkedIn last night. And I was like, I think I know everywhere Tia worked, but I didn't know you did a radio for Cosmo. I did. <laughs> so I, what was that like? Okay. So this was during that period where I was like, I'm an author. I'm going to make enough money. I don't need. And then I was like, okay, no, I need to do something else. It was right when Sirius was starting to happen. And Cosmo uh, reached out to Kate White. Was it Kate at the time? They were looking for hosts for a new radio show they were going to do. I, at the time, was doing a lot of talking head stuff on like E! and MTV and VH1, just talking about style and pop culture. So I sort of had a voice at the time. I had a reel. And so I went in and I did an audition and I got it. And so I started for over a year. I was hosting this morning show. I didn't get up at four in the morning. It was a little bit of music, a little bit of like self-help, like audience members would call in and talk about their sex problems and their relationship problems and stuff. And then it was some content that we prepared, like things that were happening in 2006, 2007. But it was a lot of fun. That's something I didn't know about you. That was like a new find. 
Yeah. Uh, Whenever I hear anything like mid nineties Timberland, like that promiscuous song with him, Furtado, or like Justin Timberlake, I'm like, those are my Cosmo years. Like, <laughs> I mean, I know you did your first novel, but you did some teen lit too. I did. Yes, I did. So this is in the Gossip Girl era. Remember that show, Gossip Girl? Um, it was also a really successful book series. And so at the time, Disney Hyperion, a book publisher, reached out to me and they were like, we want to do like a diverse, like a multicultural Gossip Girl kind of a situation. And I was like, you've come to the right place. And so I wrote this series called It Chicks. I'm an 80s child. So I was born in the 70s, but a kid in the 80s. So I was obsessed with failure. And so I did sort of a series where a very diverse group of kids are at the LaGuardia Performing Arts High School. And they all come from different backgrounds. And, you know, one's a rapper, one's a dancer, one's a singer, you know, and all the drama that ensues. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it sounds like fun. I remember when you did that. I'm not the audience, so I don't think I read it. I've read all your other books, you know, your adult books. Let's talk about taking the leap to corporate beauty and being at a beauty brand. And tell me what's different about doing that kind of beauty. My first job in corporate beauty was Bumble and Bumble, which is the hair care brand. And what happened was I was laid off from my magazine job because the world was changing. Obviously, like, you know, around 2011, 2012, everything was going digital. If you didn't know digital, you were a dinosaur. And I was a dinosaur. Like, I grew up in the print world. And even though I had a blog, I wasn't savvy. Like I said, my ex-husband set it up for me. Like it literally was just like typing and I think he would press in. And I was just sort of lost. And I was also like, I had an old school salary in a new school time. And as you know, Corinne, like our generation was just kind of put out to pasture. And I was like, okay, I have to reinvent myself. I don't know what to do. And I was just freelancing here and there for a couple of years. And then I was like, what about corporate? And the Bumble and Bumble job as copy director came up. And so I started there. The learning curve was steep because what I came to understand, you know, when you're a journalist, when you're an editor, it's about your opinion, you know, and how you feel about this lip gloss, (laughs) like the way you see it fitting into culture and the way you respond to the texture and the way you feel about this fragrance. As copy director at Bumble and Bumble, my job was to name all the products, to write the advertising copy, to write the copy that's going to land on Sephora and going to live in retailers. And I walked in there and I was like, this is the best mousse I've ever, you know, and our legal department, hello, I didn't know there was a legal department, would be like, we have no claims to back up that statement. We will be sued. Estee Lauder will be sued and you will be finished. The big difference was that, oh, all of my writing has to be supported by legal claims. Facts. Facts. This is a business. This isn't about my creative flourish. Like, this is not what we're here for. And so I got in a lot of trouble at first and I had to sort of teach myself how it all works. But after I understood the legal ramifications of what I was doing, it became so much fun to be the voice of a brand, to interpret the voice of a multi-million dollar beauty brand is heady stuff. So when you're working corporate, it's no longer about your voice. It's about the voice of whatever brand you're inhabiting at the time. You, know, you have to be nimble because if you work at L'Oreal, L'Oreal is going to sound different than Cody and Cody's going to sound different than branded LVMH. So you have to know how to massage your voice. 
Start Right Here is brought to you by Beauty Biz Camp, where we equip and inspire the next generation of industry leaders. Head over to our website, beautybizcamp.com, for more information and sign up for our mailing list so you can stay in the know about our upcoming programming. What is the unsung skill you need to succeed in the beauty industry overall, in your opinion? I think you have to have something that sets you apart because it's not enough to love beauty and it's not enough to be able to string a couple words together because there are so many outlets. When we were beauty editors, there was like seven fixed positions. <laughs> like Other than that, like, but now you can work in digital. You could be a vlogger. You could be a blogger. There's a million ways. You could just be a Twitter beauty person. So the market is saturated with voices. So you have to figure out what your thing is and really just try to offer something that no one else is offering. And also, if you're not working for yourself, if you're going to go work for a brand or publication, being fast is important too because you can't put forever on a piece anymore. You got to turn it out and the quality has to be there. And deadlines are real. Deadlines are real. Yeah. As a copy director, you work with a team. So how do you identify top talent? What do you look for in somebody that's working on your team? I'm a writer's writer. And to me, it's the dream effect. It's still what is the most important thing to me. Someone else might tell you insane beauty knowledge, like knowing all your references. To me, the most important thing is being an amazing writer because I feel like you can sell anything if you can write well. I mean, I look at sports writing and food writing sometimes for inspiration because it's about the craft more than the content to me. Yeah, like when I was at Bumble and Bumble, the last hire I personally made at Bumble and Bumble was our digital writer, Olivia Batetti. And I was interviewing so many people. And she came in and was whip smart. I gave her an edit test and she nailed the voice instantly. And her writing was so sharp and funny. And that was it for me. That's what really stood out because. What Jean always told me was that with beauty writing, you want to sound like you're talking to your smartest, chicest friend. You want to sound conversational a bit. You want to get the information across and the beauty education across and the product information across, but sound like someone you would want to listen to. And she just did. And her voice just cut through the clutter. And I think to me that craft is more important than knowing everything about beauty because you can learn anything. That's true. That is definitely true. When we're talking about you can learn anything that you do have to learn eventually, you have to learn. So when we're talking about all the different outlets that you can express your beauty love, there should be some knowledge and growth that comes along with the personality that you may be. Um, You just can't one day wake up and say, oh, you could one day wake up and say, I'm going to be a beauty star and not have anything to back it up. (laughs) You have to be prepared. Absolutely. That goes without saying. But I think also you have to have talent. It's not enough just to like have a hobby. Like I like makeup. It has to be more than that. It's true. When do you know when it's time to leave a job? When you're phoning it in, when you're on autopilot, when it's clear you're not going to get promoted, when you don't see any growth, if you have an abusive boss, or if you've been there for three years. 
<laughs> Don't stay anywhere past three years. If you want to grow and you haven't grown in three years, you need to leave. And the thing is, you have to be your own advocate because people don't look out for you. It's very true. How do you go about being your own advocate? You know what I do? What I tell people, the advice I give people is, if you had a daughter, would you want her being treated this way? Or would you let her stand for this? Because I think there's a lot of things that you accept and sort of go along with because it's you and, you know, Black women. We're really good at absorbing some abuse and moving on. Like we just carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. And it needs to stop. And sometimes the only time you can see it clearly is if you stood outside of yourself and pretended it was happening to someone else. Like, would you allow your best friend, your daughter, your sister? What if your mom was in this position with a manager speaking to her the way yours does? Then you have to advocate the way you would advocate for your girl. And it's also about finding and using your voice. Yeah. You have a voice because you're using it in your work. But what about using that voice for yourself? Exactly. It's hard to do. Like, I mean, I was in my 30s before I knew how to speak up. It took me a while as well. But and I also think that this generation is different from us. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They and they, anyway, because they have Twitter and Instagram and TikTok, and they're able to get their stuff out in a way that we weren't. We were very repressed in that way. Yes. Speaking of doing things to get your voice out, you're a novelist. How important is it for you to write outside of editorial? And let's talk about the perfect find in, in Gabrielle Union. Yes. Buying the rights and making the movie. Yay! Oh, my God. Well, our friend Robin Lee. Yes, Robin. <laughs> she and Gabrielle are really close friends. And Robin was reading my book. And I think... Gabrielle was going on vacation and Robin was like, you should read The Perfect Vine. And she took it on vacation. She was like, I love this. I want to do something with this. And the whole thing was just surreal because I don't know any novelist who doesn't dream about their book being made into a movie. I've always wanted that. And I've had interest before with my other novels, but I found out quickly that Hollywood, I mean, it's just sort of a kooky place and you can't put all your eggs in one basket. And so when there started to be this interest with The Perfect Find and she was pursuing it, I was like, okay, that's fabulous news. It's great. It'll never happen. Trying not to get my hopes up. And it did. And I'm still pinching myself because I just can't believe it. The main character in The Perfect Find is absolutely based on me. So what this means is that Gabrielle Union is going to be basically playing me. Do we know who's playing Eric? I don't know. Oh, my God. Everything is stalled because of COVID. Right. So it all, you know, remains to be seen the rest of the casting. But Okay, so for those who are listening, read The Perfect Find. You will not be disappointed. Not at all. It is such a good ride. And especially if you work in the media industry, you'll really appreciate the story. Really <laughs> appreciate the story. It's very insidery. <laughs> very insidery and um, fun ride. It's not the devil wears Prada necessarily or anything like that, but it is a totally unique story. And if you read Tia's first novel, you will recognize some people in the story. That's right. That's right. Billy and Jay come back. Your next book is coming out June, 2021. Yes. It's called seven days in June. Okay. Yeah. And it's about these teenage sweethearts who have run away for one week in June in 12th grade and they have this insane encounter and then they never speak again and then 15 years later they run into each other at this author 
event, and they're both best-selling novelists that haven't spoken in 15 years, but they've been low-key writing about that experience for 15 years. They meet again and madness ensues. Excellent. I can't wait for that one. I cannot wait for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I do love a, a sexy love story. Well, that's always good. And that is what we need right now, people. Right now. That's why I'm telling you to read The Perfect Find. And then while you're at it, read The Idea of You, Robin Lee's book. Read them both. You will not be disappointed and you will feel like, okay, I'm in a pandemic, but I am having the time of my life. Oh, the idea of you is so transportive. Absolutely. Now let's move on to our fast track questions. What's the first beauty product you ever purchased? Maybelline lipstick, zinc pink. It was a horrible icy pink. <laughs> What's the last beauty product you tried? Boy Brow, Glossier Boy Brow. What's the beauty advice you live by or leave alone? Push your cuticles back. I live by that. And that came from my little sister. When we were growing up, she thought it was so gross that I never did anything about my cuticles. She'd be like, push those back. So I always do it. What I don't do, which is horrible, is wash my face before bed every night. Well, that's real talk. I don't think everybody does. I mean, as much as we try, sometimes it doesn't happen. I remember interviewing Halle Berry years ago, and she said, that is the one thing that she does do. She says, I will find the wipes. I don't care if I'm drunk or whatever. I want to take the makeup off. And her skin is flawless. So we should all be following her example. Who gave you the best career advice and what was it? Oh, I already answered that one. That was Jean with the right, like you're talking to your Sheikah smartest friend. Are you a mentor or mentee? I'm both. And what do you think the value of that is? I think being a mentor is immensely valuable because you're passing on knowledge that you've accrued during your career that your mentee hasn't had the experience to figure out yet. A lot of times women in our generation didn't really have mentors and we had to figure it out ourselves. And so I think that the best thing we can do is pass on what we know to a generation so they don't have to sort of struggle the way we did or be lost the way we were. Your interview prep tip that you would give to someone else. Prep. That is my interview prep tip because I've had people come in and have no idea what job they're interviewing for. Just hand you their resume and be like, okay, now you do the hard work and stare at you like you owe them something. Do the work. When I found out that the editor-in-chief of YM needed a beauty assistant, this is before the internet, I went to the Bloomingdale's beauty counter and I went to CVS. I memorized everything. I read the backs of packaging. I noticed what was put forward and what had signage. So this is what's important. These are the trends right now. I took notes in my little steno pad. No one was more prepared than me. You have to prep like that. What makes a candidate memorable? Asking really good questions. It's kind of cheesy, but I do love, what are you looking for in an ideal candidate? You know? When the interviewee sort of turns it around on you, like, I want to know what you think would be the best version of the person in this job. I have a one bonus question that's just not part of Fast Track Round, but I thought since we're talking about being Black women in beauty and the time that we're in and all of the industry paying attention to our needs. Yes. How do we keep the momentum going? Because we've seen us be trend and not trend more than once. Yeah. 
how do we make this time different? And it's not like you or I would have the right answer, but it's worth discussing. The thing that make well, one of the things that make this sort of revolution feel a little bit different than the revolutions before is the volume of voices. And again, because of social and just because of the way technology and the world is set up now, the voice sounds louder because it's coming from so many and from so many places and so many platforms. And I would just say to keep it loud, to keep up this energy, like your life depends on it because it does. Something else will come like a shiny, pretty penny and you decide, oh, that penny's prettier. So I'm going that way. Mm -hmm. No, it has to be this. It has to be this. And I think that corporations and brands want to change. They don't know how to change. You know, there's all these band-aids right now, like no more blackface episodes on TV. It's like, okay, but what about, you know, can we get rid of the cops? So it's just like hold everyone to the fire still until we get what we want. I mean, thank God they're taking down Confederate monuments, but it doesn't stop there. Real structural change. Yeah. Keep going. I like to say we have to play the long game. As opposed to, you know, the immediate reward. We want the long-term reward and we want sustained change. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Tia, for joining me today. This has been an incredible conversation. And I think that our listeners will learn a lot about finding their voice, using their voice in different ways. And if you love beauty, there's many ways to express it. Absolutely. Yeah. Figure out what you love and then just broadcast it as loud as you can good way to end. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. That's our show for today. Remember that there's more than one way to the top and the most important step is the first one. So start right here.